Well, this morning you can see that we're picking up in Philippians chapter 2. Last week we got really far through verse 1. This morning we'll be in verse 2. We'll make it a little bit further. You can see in your bulletin the, the title of this sermon is Spiritual Unity in the Body, The Attitude. The Attitude. In the pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, Tozer said this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. And just as those individual pianos are tuned to the same tuning fork, each one of us as believers must be tuned to Christ in order to have unity in the body of Christ. That's what Paul's been discussing with the Philippian believers. He's been talking about unity in the body of Christ. That the Philippians must pursue unity. Paul knows that when each one of us is tuned to Christ, then we will have unity in the body of Christ. Which is why he makes his appeal in verse 1, emphasizing what Christ has done in the Philippians' lives. In our lives as believers. We've all received encouragement in Christ. We've all received consolation of love. We've all received the fellowship of the Spirit. We've all received affection and compassion or mercy from our great God. And he points out these things in the lives of these Philippian believers so that they would be motivated to pursue unity. He wants to motivate the church to make sure that they are pursuing unity as one church. But if it wasn't enough to motivate and urge the church to pursue unity, if that wasn't enough in verse 1, well then he'll use another means of motivation. He's going to use himself. He'll use himself. And we're going to see that here in verse 2. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Philippians 2 and let me read our passage for us beginning in verse 2. 1. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Now, as we said last time, Paul gives an appeal for unity as the church was to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We saw that back up in chapter 1 and verse 27, where he says this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's desire for them is to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as they are conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, they must be pursuing unity in the church. And he appeals then to the reality of what God has already done in their lives. That they have encouragement in Christ. They have a consolation of love. They have the fellowship of the Spirit. They have received affection and mercy or compassion from God. And he uses God's work in their lives then to motivate them to pursue unity. We looked at that last time. And why does this church need to be exhorted to unity? Why is it that they must be exhorted by Paul to unity? Well, because there was some disunity in the body. In fact, over in chapter 4 and verse 2, we read, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. You had these two women in the church and there was disunity between these women. They were not living in harmony in the Lord with one another. And Paul knows the devastating effect of disunity in the body of Christ. He knows how devastating disunity is. In fact, it was John Calvin who said that Satan's chief device against the body of Christ is disunity and division. Disunity and division. If Satan can get a church to be divided, he knows that she has then lost her focus. The church has lost her focus. He knows that those people have taken their focus off of Christ and they've put their focus onto whom? Themselves. Because disunity always comes when two people want to fulfill their own personal desires. And they begin to think about themselves as most important rather than other people. Paul knows this. Paul knows this just as well as John Calvin knew it. Which is why he appeals for the Philippian believers to be united. But as I said, Paul doesn't just use their relationship with Christ as a motivation for unity, but he also uses their relationship with Him, their relationship to Him as a motivation for unity. In fact, look at what he says in verse 2 there. He says, make my joy complete. Talking about his own personal joy. Make my joy complete. That there is the only imperative in all of these, these first four verses right here. Verses 1 through 4. This is the only imperative that is given in these four verses. Make my joy complete. Which means this is a command. It's a command from Paul as an apostle with the authority of Christ that he's been given, and he says, make my joy complete. He wants them to make his joy complete. 
Now remember, Paul already has joy for them, right? He's already expressed that to them. He has joy for these believers in Philippi. In fact, in his prayer in chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Chapter 1 and verse 19, he rejoices knowing that the Philippian believers were praying for him. It causes his heart to rejoice. In chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. He rejoices because he understands and knows the concern that the Philippian believers have for him. He already has joy in his heart for them. Great joy for them. But he wants them to complete his joy or to fill his joy up. As I said, it has the the idea of filling a cup to the brim. His cup was already full, but he wants them to fill his cup of joy all the way up to the very top, up to the brim. He wants them to make his joy complete. And how how would they be able to fill his cup of joy all the way to the brim, all the way up to the very top? By being what? United. By being united. Now this word complete here in the Greek is the word plerao. Plerao. And it's an aorist imperative, which means that it is something that is urgent. And it demands that the action is to be taken immediately. Paul has urgency in this. He's saying, look... This is so important in the life of the church that it must be taken care of right away. Unity in the church is so important. It's to be be done right now. You don't have time to waste to sit around and start thinking about how we can one day accomplish unity in the church. He says, no, we don't have time for that. It must be done now. There's urgency in this. If there is disunity in the church, it must be taken care of right away. It is so important to have unity in the body of Christ. Paul is saying this as a commander of of a military army would say, we don't have time to wait. We must act now. Which means that if there is any division in the body of Christ, take care of it right away. That's of first importance in the body. You must take care of any disunity that's going on in the body of Christ. The church must be unified. But how is this to be done? How is this to be done? As Paul urges unity, how is unity to be done? How is this to be accomplished? Well, Paul now turns to talk about their attitudes. The attitudes in the church. First was an appeal to their position in Christ, but now as he's urging them to pursue unity, he touches on four marks or four attitudes that need to be in the church in order to have unity. And all four of these here, as we study these, are all related as we work through these. 
All four of them are speaking of attitudes in the church. And Paul just piles these up one on another to get the point across as to how vital unity is in the church. He's just piling one on top of, on top of the other. He wants them to understand and know how vital unity is in the church. And so we're going to see these four attitudes here. Let's look at the first attitude. The first attitude, which is what we'll call the same attitude. That in order to have unity in the church, we must have the same attitude. Notice what he says there in verse 2, by being of the same mind. By being of the same mind. Now oftentimes when we think about disunity in the church, and any kind of division that happens in the church, it's often because of doctrinal differences, right? It's usually because of doctrinal differences. Think about it. Some of you have probably left churches because of doctrinal differences. You didn't believe in the doctrine that was being taught there. And someone might say about Faith Bible Church, well, they are all united because all of us are members. And as members of Faith Bible Church, we have all agreed to the same doctrinal statement in the membership packet. All of you that have gone through the membership class and become members of Faith Bible Church, you had to sign off that you agree to the statement of faith at Faith Bible Church. You agree to what we teach here. And someone might look at that and say, well, what a united church. They all agree to the same statement of faith. We all agree on the doctrines of grace. We all agree on the, the gifts of the Spirit. We all agree on our eschatology as it's laid out in our doctrinal statement. So doesn't that mean then that we are a united church? Well, that's not what Paul has in mind here. He doesn't have that in mind at all. In fact, there were no doctrinal differences in the church at Philippi. No doctrinal differences. He never addresses doctrinal differences that were going on in the church. And so for him to say that they need to be of the same mind doesn't, need, doesn't mean that they need to get their doctrine in order. So what does Paul mean then? Well, I want you to see that word. Look at that word mind there. By being of the same mind. That word mind there in the Greek is the word phroneo, which means to have an opinion about something or to hold or to form an opinion about something or to judge. And it conveys having the right attitude about something. That's what Paul's after. In fact, if you look down at verse 5, notice what Paul says there in verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. That word attitude in verse 5 there is the exact same word for mind in verse 2. In the Greek, it's the exact same word. Phroneo. Paul uses it again in chapter 3 and verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude... And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. He's concerned about their attitudes in the church. In fact, I love how the Net Bible translates 
chapter 3 and verse 15, it says this, Therefore, let those of us who are perfect embrace the, this point of view. That word attitude, how they, how they translate attitude is, is embracing this point of view. You must embrace the same point of view. You must have the same point of view. One way that we could say that is they were to have the same mindset. As a church, we are to have the same mindset. One commentator says this, might we say worldview? Worldview? We are to think the same way. We are to have the same mindset, have the same point of view, have the same worldview. Because we have a different worldview than the world does, right? We have a biblical worldview. And so we're to be united and have the same mind, the same mindset, the same worldview. In fact, Paul uses the same word in chapter 3 and verse 19 to show how the world thinks. Those who are enemies of the cross. In fact, look at that verse. In chapter 3 and verse 19, he says this, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That's how the world thinks. They set their mind on earthly things. Their mindset is set, their worldview is set, their point of view is set on earthly things. And their attitude is then controlled by the world and how the world thinks. They're worldly people. Not just because of how they act, but because of how they think. They're worldly, not just because of how they act, but because of how they think. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about the mind. Did you know that? A lot to say about the mind and how we think. And our thoughts and our attitudes are connected. They're connected. That is why this word in the Greek, phroneo, is used interchangeably for mind and attitude because they're connected it has to do with our minds it has to do with our attitudes and so if being of the same mind then does not mean just agreeing on some doctrinal statement how can you and i be of the same mind how we can how can we have the same attitudes have the same point of view, have the same worldview. Well, I'm going to give you a negative example, and then we'll look at a positive one. Turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. This passage should be very familiar to you. Mark chapter 8, verse 33 The context here is that Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But Mr. Peter has a different plan. And look at what he says in verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get 
behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your what? Mind on God's interests, but man's. What was Peter setting his mind on? He was setting his mind on man's interests instead of God's interests. Commentator Edmund Hebert says this, this denotes what dominated and swayed Peter's thoughts. He was motivated not by the things of God, things related to God's purposes, but by the things of men, the concerns of fallible human beings. That is what his mind was set upon at this time. That is what he was thinking about. Not the things of God, but the things of man. Man's interests. Even though he had a heart that was, that was right, that was, that was loving Jesus. No, you can't go to the cross. No, they can't kill you. That's not what Jesus said. He said, look, the Son of Man is going to go. Because that's why I was sent. And Peter... Even though you have the right intentions, I understand you have the right intentions, your mind is not set upon the things of God. Your mind is set upon man's interests, on your own thinking. And so Peter had to be rebuked by Jesus for the way that he was what? Thinking. The way that he was thinking. If we want to be of the same mind, we must be continually setting our minds on God's interests. Having the same attitude as we set our minds upon the interests of God. Which means we can't have our minds set upon our own interests, right? They must be set upon the interests of God. Now turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is a glorious passage. It begins in Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then look at what Paul says in verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their what? Minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and what? Peace. Peace. Paul here deals with two mindsets or two outlooks here. The mind that is set on the flesh and the mind that is set on the Spirit. Again, the, the Net Bible translates verse 5 this way. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. What is your outlook shaped by? The things of the flesh or the things of the Spirit? And as Paul is writing this here to the Romans, what Paul has in mind here specifically is their worldview. It's their worldview. 
Those who live according to the flesh have their worldview shaped by the things of the flesh. They are worldly people. But those who live according to the Spirit have their worldview shaped by the things of the Spirit. They are Spirit-led people. And that's what we're called to be. Spirit-led people. You see, it has to do with our minds and our attitudes. It has to do with our minds and our attitudes. Now, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church, did this church need a lesson on unity? (laughs) Well, you bet they did. In fact, he addresses it in chapter 1. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? What's going on in the church here? What's going on, Corinthians? But look at what he says in chapter 2. Speaking of being a spirit-led believer. Notice what he says in chapter 2 in verse 12. He says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We have received the Spirit who is from God. When we talked about this last week, right? The fellowship of the Spirit, that we've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation, we have the Spirit of God. But look down at verse 16. Notice what he says there. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the what? Mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. And how do we have the mind of Christ? How is it that us here at Faith Bible Church, how do we have the mind of Christ? Because we have his what? His Word. We have His Word. Warren Wearsby says, to have the mind of Christ means to look at life from the Savior's point of view, having His values and desires in mind. It means to think God's thoughts and not to think as the world thinks. It's what it means to have the mind of Christ. And we have the mind of Christ revealed to us in His Word. But it doesn't mean that we just have a few Bible verses memorized. It's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying just show up to a WANA or Adventure Club, repeat your verses to your teacher and you'll get a sticker. Good job. He's not saying just memorize a few Bible verses. So what does it mean then to have the mind of Christ? Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is talking about putting on the new self. That we lay aside the old self, we put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Notice what he says, though, in verse 15. Colossians 3 and verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Notice the unity there. One body, and be thankful. And then in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, 
and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice Paul here is speaking about peace and being one body, being united. But how does it happen? Notice what he says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Notice he doesn't just say memorize it. But he says let it dwell within you. It means that Christ's word must richly dwell within us. That it should so impact our hearts that we're motivated by it. And therefore then we live by it. We're controlled by it. Our very thoughts, the things that we think, are thoughts that are biblical thoughts. And then what kind of attitudes will we have? Biblical attitudes. Because the mind and the attitudes are connected. It means that your entire thinking process is controlled by the Word of God. And listen, church, that is why it is so important for us to know God's Word. We must know it so that it sinks in, so that it dwells within us. So that our thinking process is controlled by it. And when the entire church is controlled by the word of God. And we are thinking the same thing and having the same attitudes. As they are controlled by his word. Then listen church. We will have unity. We'll have unity. We'll be a united church. But the moment that we begin to have selfish attitudes and allow the flesh to take control is the moment that we will have disunity in the body. Now, turn back to Philippians chapter 2. Let me just highlight this word mind here again. Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. This word is a present tense word in the Greek, meaning this. It's an action that is abiding, continual, or habitual. It's an action that is is continual. That is that you and I are always to be of the same mind. Always, continually. It must be something that is continual in the body of Christ. And as we continue to be of the same mind with the same attitudes, we will then be a church that is united. And so Paul tells us first that we are to have the same attitude. Let's look at our second point, point number two. We're also to have a loving attitude. A loving attitude. Notice verse two. Paul continues and he says, maintaining the same Love. Maintaining the same love. Now, we already spoke about love back in verse 1, right? We spoke about this love. If there's any consolation of love, that is, as believers, you and I have been loved by God. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But God loved us. And He showed His love in sending His Son to die on a cross for our sins. To save us from an eternity of hell, in hell. An eternity of total separation from Him. 
We've received this love from God. And therefore, it's only because of God's love for us that we are then able to love one another. John said in 1 John 4.19, we love because He first what? Loved us. We're only able to love because God first loved us. Now notice this word, maintaining, in verse 2 there. He says, maintaining the same love. Maintaining implies what? you already have it, right? Maintain it, which means you already have it. That is, Paul is saying, you already have love for one another in the church. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul prayed that their love may abound still more and more. That you have love for one another, but it should abound even more and more for one another. They have this love in the church. But he wants them to maintain that love for one another. And as they maintain that love, what is it going to produce? Unity. It'll produce unity. Now the word that Paul uses for love here in the Greek is the word agape. This is agape love. It means the quality of warm regard for and interest in another person. Esteem affection or regard one commentator says agape agape love gives and gives and gives he goes on and he says this it takes slaps in the face and still gives with the attitude of jesus who said father forgive them that's agape love it's selfless love And it means that we love everybody the same. We're to love one another the same. It's not some kind of emotional love. Agape love is not emotional love. Because love that is driven by emotions is not maintainable. Right? It's not maintainable. Your emotions are going to go up and down. You're going to have loving emotions when we have fellowship after church here this morning. Love for one another. But as soon as you get out on the road, your emotions are going to change. And you might not be so loving at that point. Our emotions change, right? They're not maintainable. But agape love is a maintainable love. Because it loves everybody the same, no matter what the circumstances are. It's a love that continues to love. Because it's a love that's driven by Christ's love for us. Will Christ ever stop loving us? Never. Never. He will never, ever stop loving us. So what are we to do? Reflect that same love in showing love for one another. Maintaining that love, that agape love. What does it come down to? It comes down to your attitude. It comes down to your attitude. When your attitude butts heads with another person's attitude, what's just happened? Division. You weren't maintaining love. You weren't maintaining love. You didn't have the will and the desire to love that person. 
but you let your emotions control you and you didn't respond in love toward that person. But we're called to have loving attitudes toward one another without distinctions, without looking at external standards or having inward biases. It's a love that's not affected by any of those. It's a continual maintaining love. And we love because He first loved us. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? How they will know that we are His disciples? Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you're My disciples, if you have what? Love for one another. If you have love for one another. And so we will have unity in the body when we have loving attitudes toward one another. Third, third point is an agreeing attitude. An agreeing attitude. Look at verse 2. Paul says, united in spirit. United in spirit. Now, he's not talking about united in the Holy Spirit. He's already told us that up in verse 1, that we have the fellowship of the Spirit, that we're all united because we have the Holy Spirit in us. But this word, uh, this phrase, united in the Spirit, is actually one word in the Greek. It's only one word. And this is the only time that it's used in the New Testament, right here in this place. It's a compound word and could possibly have been made up by Paul. He just made it up. It's the word sum sukos or sum sukos. Sum meaning with and suke meaning soul. With soul. And so we could say that Paul is telling us to be fellow souled. That our souls are to be united with one another. That we're to be one souled. One commentator says that this word describes total agreement in attitude. Total agreement in attitude. That is, our souls are in harmony with one another. We have harmonious souls. We're united in our souls. Which means that our souls are then in agreement. We're in agreement with each other. We'll have hearts that are all beating in unison with one heartbeat one continuous heartbeat being united and we can have inner harmony within all of us as believers in Christ because when we are led by the spirit our souls our desires our passions will all be in agreement with one another right as we're led by the spirit the Spirit is not going to lead us and have divisions in the body. As each one of us yields our soul, yields our desires, our passions to be led by the Holy Spirit, every one of us then will be united in the Spirit. And we'll then be able to avoid strife and self-interest. Because we'll be interested in living harmoniously as brothers and sisters in Christ. Music is such a great picture of this, isn't it? Such a wonderful picture of this. 
as we read in our call to worship this morning, to sing unto the Lord, to sing unto Him. And as we gather together on Sunday mornings and we sing praises to Him, we are united in spirit. All together, united, singing these truths unto our God. We don't come in and all sing different songs. That would be total chaos. We all open our bulletins and we're singing the same song and we're singing the same truths because we are united in spirit. Harmonious. We might have different voices. Some high, some low. Some good, some maybe not so good. But we sing out. And even if you don't have a good voice, sing out unto the Lord. Sing harmoniously unto the Lord. It's a joyful noise unto Him. And He wants to hear us united singing out these truths unto Him. And so we are to have an agreeing attitude. And when we have agreeing attitudes, we will have unity in the body. Finally, let's look at our last point, point number four. We must have gospel-centered attitudes. We must have gospel-centered attitudes. Look at the end of verse two. He says, intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose. That word purpose in the Greek is the exact same word for mind that he just used up earlier in verse 2. It's the exact same word. It's as if Paul goes full circle now and he goes right back to the mind or to the attitude and says that there must be one goal, one aim, one purpose. That we're all striving together with one goal in mind. Earlier in verse 2 where he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, Paul was calling us to be of the same mind. But here he is calling for us to think one thing. He gets more detailed here. More narrow focused. And he says, you must all think one thing. That's the idea there behind one purpose. It's more specific. Literally, it's to be minding one thing or to be thinking one thing. That's what that word purpose there means. It means that we're to be united in our, in our minds as we all think about one subject. But when believers are preoccupied with their own personal agendas, they will split the church because they won't have their minds focused upon one subject. There will be multiple subjects. And then so-and-so is going to side with so-and-so. Somebody's going to be about this subject and another person's going to be about that subject. And when that happens in the church, there's disunity. But Paul says we must be focused on one thing. Thinking one thing. And what is the one thing that we're all to be thinking and aiming at? Here it is, church. The glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. It's not about our personal agendas. It's not about our personal desires. 
our personal passions. It's about the glory of God. And isn't that what the gospel is all about? It's what the gospel is all about. It's all about the glory of God. In fact, turn over to Romans chapter 9. Let me show this to you. Romans chapter 9. This is a wonderful passage. Romans 9 through 11 is so, so rich. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 9. Verse 21, he says, Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Notice this in verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory. Notice this, upon vessels of what? Mercy. Who are the vessels of mercy? We are. Believers. That's us. That's who he's talking about there. We are the vessels of mercy. We are the vessels who have received mercy from God. We have received eternal life from him, something that none of us deserve. Notice he says this, and he did this to make known the riches of his what? His glory. The riches of his glory. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. It's to put his glory on display. That's what the gospel is all about. To put God's glory on display. God saved you. Listen, church. God saved you to put his glory on display. He didn't save you so that you could have a better life. It's a byproduct of it. That you will have peace with God. But he saved you so that he could put his glory on display for the world to see. So that when people look at you, they'll say, wait, God did what in your life? But, but, but I know the person you used to be. Yeah, that's right. The sinner that I was. And even the sinner that I am. I'm not perfect. But God saved me. And He gets all the glory for it. God did this work. And if our personal agenda is not collectively the glory of God, then there will be all kinds of division in the church. Listen, we need to be single-minded, focused on Christ and His glorious gospel. And when we live our lives with that one purpose, that one goal, that one aim, then we will be living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what will the result be? Unity. We will have unity. In closing, I want you to know how great it is to pastor a church that is focused on the glory of God. I know that's your heart. I know that's the heartbeat of our church. We want to put God's glory on display, right? We're single-minded. 
We love one another here. That is the one thing that people tell me all the time when they come and visit our church. They're such a loving people. I know they are. You know why? Because we're all focused on one purpose, one goal, to bring glory to God. And it's shown by our love, our love for one another and our love for other people. And it brought Paul great joy to know that the church was unified. As John Calvin said, Satan's chief device against the body of Christ is disunity and division. And listen, church, Satan is not going to give up. He's not going to give up. He's not going to look at Faith Bible Church and go, wow, look at them living for the glory of God. Well, I tried. He's not going to give up. He will try and sow disunity and discord in the body. But we must be focused on unity in the body. Living for the glory of God. As we continually have the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. And as long as we have that attitude here at Faith Bible Church, we will continually stay united. Well, that's the attitude of spiritual unity in the body. There are also actions to take to have spiritual unity in the body as well, but we'll look at those next time. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for Faith Bible Church. Thank you for our love for one another. Thank you for the love that I have received. from my fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, I, I know that that is a byproduct of their love for you. Lord, keep us united. Help us to be united in attitude. That we would be selfless. That we would be humble that we would look at Christ who is our example of what it means to live a selfless and humble life. We thank you for Christ and his death on the cross to save us from our sins. We thank you that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day and that he offers eternal life to all who put their faith in him. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you, May they run to Christ. May they turn from their sin and run to Christ and put their faith in Him. Lord, may they receive the fellowship of the Spirit and be united with us as we are united as one body. And Lord, as we live our lives focused on one purpose, gospel-centered attitudes, may we do it all to bring glory and honor, and praise, and adoration to your name. In your name alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.